Pac-12 is down to two schools after this year, but the conference may continue on in some capacity. Plus, we're previewing the NFL season with TNF analytics expert Sam Schwartzstein. It's Friday, September 8th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. There may still be a conference called the Pac-12 after this year, but it won't look much like what we have now. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, how's it going? Great. How are you doing? Good. Good. Never a slow uh, news day in college sports, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. It was already pretty pretty intense before college football season started, and uh, you know now it has not stopped. Um, so you've been looking into the future of the Pac-12 or something that would be called the Pac-12. What's the story here? Yeah, so it's interesting because everyone has been talking, including me, about the death of the Pac-12. And it's very clear that with only two um, previous Pac-12 schools planning to stay in the conference as of now, um, after this season, that is true. However, uh, the name the Pac-12 could live on in one of two ways, um, either if Oregon State and Washington State can sort of rebuild uh, the existing conference by pulling in members. That's what they want to do, but it doesn't seem very likely. What is more likely is if they do a, quote, reverse merger with the Mountain West, where they join the Mountain West and bring the name and the brand of the Pac-12 with them. Um, And I spoke with a source um, a couple days ago who said that that concept is the most talked about idea in the Mountain West right now, and that it's currently being explored. So there are a lot of hurdles to making that happen. What do you think is the biggest challenge here? I mean, I think the biggest challenge is the legal, uh, the legal issues, right? It's disentangling the intellectual property. Um, it's making sure that Oregon State and Washington State retain the Pac-12 revenue distribution that was slated um, to get to their conference by twenty in, or in twenty twenty four, and then also that they could retain some of the uh, revenue that the conference just kind of has in its back pocket. Um, obviously they're not going to want to share that with the existing Mountain West members because why would they, right? Those it's PAC 12 money. So that's, that's part of it. Um, who would be the commissioner? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that George Klievkoff is not going to be, um, a college sports commissioner after this season. Um, it makes a lot of sense to have Mountain West commissioner Gloria Navarez become the commissioner of this new conference composition. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, I, the, the, all of the contractual and legal implications of this. And again, I'm not an expert, but everything from intellectual property to revenue to media deals, right? All of that is very complex and will need to be hammered out, but it can be done and it has been done before. So it feels like this is being orchestrated and negotiated by Oregon state and Washington state is the Pac-12 itself, you know, the is George Klyovkov or someone in there um, doing something here? Uh, Klyovkov is reportedly not involved in conversations about the fate of Oregon State and Washington State. That's all I know. Interesting. You, you know, you'd feel like 
this is his job, but you know, I, I, I'm not in the room here. I don't, don't know what's happening. Um, so could, could all this shake out and the PAC 12 remain a power five conference? And if it's not like, what, what happens with that? What's at stake in, in that, um, that fork in the road there? Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, when I spoke with Commissioner Navarez um, a couple weeks ago before um, Stanford, Cal, and SMU had announced their move to the ACC, she sort of said that, you know, that was the ultimate question because just because you retain retain the name Pac-12 doesn't mean that you're going to automatically retain Power 5 status. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that there are five quote, autonomy designations in uh, the NCAA governance. And those are the five power five conferences and they have extra voting power in the NCAA. A division one board can vote to demote a conference. Um, You know, that's up to them, right? So they could look at the new PAC 12 and say, you know what, this isn't worth an autonomy designation. Let's take a vote, right? The other thing is the college football playoff revenue distribution. The power each Power Five conference alone get currently makes more money from the CFP each year than all pretty much all of the um, Group of Five conferences combined. So that revenue distribution is going to be reallocated either way, given the twelve team playoff and some other implications we don't need to get into. But that's clearly going to be a factor, even if there is a new Pac-12. Is the board at the CFP going to say, mm, yeah, we don't think that you should be con- you know, included in this power designation for how much money you receive? Yeah. All right. Very interesting. Before we let you go, um, you know, the first week, week one of college football it produced all kinds of crazy stories. What are you watching for this this weekend? Well, I'm really curious um, from a business perspective to see um, how popular Colorado's home game or home opener against Nebraska is obviously, um, you know, the, the team had great ratings last year. It's again in the noon window slot, um, on Fox. So I'm curious to see whether or not Colorado can help boost, um, Fox's ratings, um, both with that noon window, which Fox is leading other networks in and, in um, their pregame show, which is competing directly with ESPN College Game Day. So in the battle for dominance over college football media rights, um, Colorado might be playing a bigger role than we expected this year. Yeah, absolutely. Amanda Christovich, thanks so much for joining us. Checking in on a couple of other stories. A potential problem has emerged for the Oakland A's move to Las Vegas. A group called Schools Over Stadiums has filed paperwork for a ballot initiative to remove the $380 million in public funding the A's are receiving for a new $1.5 billion stadium on the Las Vegas Strip. The group will have to collect over 100,000 signatures to get the initiative on the 2024 ballot, but if they do, it will present a massive issue for the team. The first step in building a new stadium will be demolishing the Tropicana Hotel, which is expected to happen in mid-2024, but a ballot initiative wouldn't be voted on until November of that year. Also, the A's currently don't have a place to play following the 2024 season because that's when their lease at the Oakland Coliseum expires, and a Vegas stadium wouldn't be ready until 2028. So, the A's might have to decide if they're committed to this move, even if it costs an extra $380 million, And if they're not, 
Is Bally's okay with demolishing the Tropicana and rolling the dice on everything else working out? Up next, I spoke to Sam Schwartzstein, a former college football player who now breaks down the numbers behind NFL games on Thursday Night Football. We talked about how he approaches that work, which positions in football are undervalued and overvalued, and his predictions for this season. That conversation is coming up right after this. I am joined now by Sam Schwartzstein, TNF analytics expert. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you. Let's get to know you a little bit. So 10 years ago, you were an offensive lineman for Stanford. Now you're an NFL analyst with some time at the XFL and other companies in the middle. How do you find yourself in this role? Yeah, um, long winding path. Uh, having played at Stanford, I was captain of the Rose Bowl championship team the year after Andrew Luck left. So I like to say he left to be a millionaire. I stayed to be a champion. Um, then I worked in tech for quite a bit of time. Uh, Andrew's father, Oliver Luck, who I'd been in communication with for years, took the job as a commissioner of uh, the XFL, and he knew he wanted to change rules. Vince McMahon wanted to reimagine the game, but in 2001, when he did the XFL, there was no real process in place. And so Oliver thought of me, who had been building products out in Silicon Valley, thinking, bring a Silicon Valley kind of mindset to changing football rules and technology. And so I was the first football employee there, built a team out from two to 800. Um, when the league ended up folding during COVID, I then consulted with multiple teams. Um, but I, I kind of carved out a niche of myself. I used uh, a data-driven approach, an analytics-driven approach to building out football rules and technology. Um, that got me connected with Amazon as they wanted to expand their footprint in the analytics space in sports and thought, you know, someone who had played the game, someone who had built the league might be a good conversation for us to have. So it's, it's been a fun growing experience with Amazon uh, to help bring, you know, the way I watch the game through a lens of analytics, through a in-depth football uh, kind of mindset to help bring that to the viewers that want that kind of action from us on Prime Vision. Yeah. And, you know, we have obviously so much data available to us today, you know, even so much more than, you know, 10 years ago when you were playing. And I feel like on one hand, you know, there's so much more to work with if you're trying to understand the game better. On the other hand, from from a you know media person perspective, in some ways, your job would be easier if there's less data to work with and you could narrow your focus a bit more. Yeah, I think um, what's been really awesome about what the growth of analytics is it's exposing the hidden game of football, which the original analytics fo- book was called the hidden game of football. So it, football is a set of rules. It's a game and just tracking the basic stats that you can see don't necessarily track the success of a team, but using analytics, we can find out that hidden game and expose people to a game of how they ch- or how teams are changing. One of the big things we say at Amazon is, The teams are investing in analytics departments. Over millions of dollars on every team is being invested. So we need to be invested. We need to show how teams are changing to the fans that love those teams. So that's a big part of how we're helping teams understand. A large part of what my job is to do is to help contextualize a lot of these high-level concepts. Yeah, and I feel like from the in the fan world, a lot of it, at least 
initially is that that core group of people who first got obsessed with all these these stats that kind of show you not just who who did well this season this game but you know who's likely to do well or who where the hidden value is i feel like a lot of that came from fantasy because there are people who are you know very competitive and wanted to find the way you know there's maybe one person who always wins the league like okay how what are they doing how, how we're all looking at the same stats right how they how they beating us um, is that sort of in your, your mindset anywhere or, or are you just, you know, trying to understand this game as best you can? Uh, you know, it, it's a large part of it. I think fans will come to prime vision, which is our alternate stream, uh, that provides an all 22 look in-depth analytics on-screen graphics to help you watch the game to where if you want to help your team, your help understand your, how your fantasy team's doing or help understand how to watch the game with a better fantasy lens so that you're more competitive on Sundays. That's absolutely what you can do on our broadcast. Uh, but we're just helping t- people get in-depth version of the game. Go deeper. Take you behind the curtain of, of football, um, even if it's just explain how play calls taken place. And so by knowing that, you can now see why certain teams have longer play calls, more delayed games, and you can still part, start watching the game with a different lens. Fantasy is the original you know, proliferator of analytics. Rotisserie baseball was the predecessor to what we now call fantasy sports. And it was all about stats junkies getting involved and uh, learning our ways to quantify the game in a unique way. And that's large part what we're trying to do. From our angle, it's helping you better understand the game. And if that helps you understand fantasy better, so be it. Yeah. Um, I want to get to some NFL topics. But first, just give me your reaction to seeing the Pac-12 collapse and your alma mater, Stanford, agreeing to join the ACC. Yeah, I think we joined, uh, we took one of our best case scenarios, which was joining the ACC. It's a really academically inclined conference. I think that's something that Stanford cared about. The ability to still play in a major conference in football is huge. I mean, Stanford is an extremely unique uh, uh, team and and school, uh, Ivy League level education with Division One sports, the most Division One sports, uh, and ACC kind of fit that. Um, it fit the ability for us to still do that. I think it's you know, a crazy world that we live in with uh, realignment, but best case scenario, um, I'm excited to be able to wake up and watch some Stanford football, which doesn't normally happen. Normally I have to stay up way too late. So we'll see some early morning football as a selfish fan. That's good. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, I'm happy to, to hear a positive take on all this madness because I think everyone is just kind of in whiplash mode right now. Um, let's get to the NFL. So the season's upon us. What do you see as the big narratives heading into this year? I think it's, uh, you know, with the news about Travis Kelsey possibly having a bone bruise, it's that he's repeating, right? It wasn't as big of a deal to lose Tyreek Hill um, and all the things he did. You know, he was still one of the most efficient receivers in the NFL last year. And Travis Kelsey was the most efficient player in the NFL. But losing both of those, we know Patrick Mahomes is maybe the best quarterback of all time. But who's he going to throw to? Uh, a lot of people picked up Sky Moore last night in uh, fantasy drafts. Uh, one of my coworkers did. Uh, he took the lead. You know, I think it's understanding that. And then the Eagles repeating is an interesting thing because the Eagles had the easiest schedule in the NFL last year when you're looking at net points. So not looking at the win-loss record of the previous team, but the uh, total points scored minus the total points allowed to get a true team strength, not just focusing on the specific games that might not have, you know, come out, might be a blown call here or there or a missed call. So um, they had an easy schedule. They still have a very similar cap situation where Jalen Hurts' cap fits into the team's schedule or team's team's compensation. So he still, even though he got the big payday, he still doesn't count against the team's cap as much 
these next two years. So they still have a big Super Bowl window, but they play a much harder schedule. They don't have to pl- they play such a cupcake schedule. So they were a great team because of who they played last year, as well as a great team. But can they match up playing a tougher schedule week in and week out? Yeah. So you, you just mentioned the the two Super Bowl teams of last year. Do you see any team that might surprise us, you know, just might come out of nowhere or nowhere if you're if you're only looking at the records last year? You know, it's not surprising to the NFL schedule makers because Thursday night's kickoff uh, with the Lions. They were, um, I think, maybe 16th in record, but they were 10th in net points. Again, how looking at your season as a whole and scoring differential, not just individual game basis. So almost like the rotisserie, rotisserie fantasy league of scoring. Um, they are very good. They return a lot of their team as well as their offensive coordinator, Ben Johnson. Normally teams with a non-offensive head coach or offensive coordinator head coach, when the offense plays well, they lose that guy. He decides to stay for another year, giving Jared Goff another year of continuity. If Amon Ross St. Brown can stay healthy, they have an opportunity to be one of the teams that rises because they still play a worse schedule than their team strength from the previous year allowed. Yeah. Uh, getting into some some other kind of more money issues here, it feels like almost every big running back had a, a, some kind of dispute with their team in this offseason. Do you think teams should be giving out bigger contracts with more guaranteed years to to these players? The, the problem is is that we how the game has changed, especially since you know probably I'd say ninety four when the salary cap got instituted for the CBA, and you have to see the ripple effects of what happens after that. With the game being so quarterback-centric, the middle of the field matters much less. So middle linebackers and running backs, because you have such an opportunity to throw it on the outside, that area matters much less. Those players also, through their lifespan of playing football, they get more wear and tear than other positions. Because even in little peewee football, the running back is the ball most. High school, college, they're such an impactful player that that position is often where a lot of the best athletes go. So the position matters less. There's a high volume of high-level players at the position. So your drop-off between the top player and the bottom and the 32nd player is not nearly as large as quarterback, lineman, or defensive back. And so you have this big thing about the whole aspect of the game. I think the big number for me for Saquon Barkley was he was one of the highest usage rates of running backs in the NFL, but he had the fourth worst success rate which measures did you help your team's chance of scoring or converting a first down on a play, yes or no? And he was one of the least consistent running backs. So, yeah, they used him a lot, and, yeah, he was a focal point of the offense. But he's such a big play um, player that it's it's hard to account for him on every single down when that's normally what your quarterback is supposed to do. They do the big plays. Your running back's supposed to be consistent, not hurt the team, which he did more often than he did not. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Um, do you, I, and I've been asking these questions to a bunch of different people, um, um, I've gotten something along those lines of that answer from, from Matt Miller at ESPN. And I'm wondering if you see a, a market inefficiency at any particular position, because it feels like we, we can see the value of so many different positions. You know, you, you, you just rattle off a few quarterback being the obvious one, but you know, outside linebackers and other, is there a place where you think teams should be putting more money? Uh, tight end position is a funny one. Uh, it's become one of the positions that uh, analytics say not to draft because rarely do tight ends pan out on their first contract. It takes time to, uh, to 
become the right player. So you never really want to reach on a running a tight end. A lot of people think that. I think it's a marketing inefficiency because we're having athletes enter that position that can both play out wide out, play in line, and do so many different things from a matchup perspective. Everything is an ebb and flow with football. Base defense is no longer the base. It's nickel defense. 61% of the time, defenses are playing with an extra defensive back on the field. Now, if you add bigger bodies on offense, you've created a mismatch. So adding players like Sam Laporta, who can run a 4-6-40, but also be 260 pounds, that extra DB who now has to cover him one-on-one has a mismatch. So investing in tight ends that can do a lot of things that wide receivers can do, and you don't have to put them in those same positions. You know, Ty Montgomery was listed as a wide receiver playing running back for many years. You can do, we've seen Debo Samuel play running back. Coming in, out in personnel groupings that then confuse the defense is hugely valuable. So finding tight ends that can play anywhere on the field, that I think is going to be a huge advantage moving forward. Um, and they, they cost way less, especially when you look at franchise tag, than wide receivers do for similar production like you get at Travis Kelsey. Yeah. So before we let you go, got to get a Super Bowl pick out of you. So you were somewhat downplaying the uh, the previous two Super Bowl teams. Well, you know, obviously acknowledging that they're still both excellent teams. Who do you see making it to the big game this year? I definitely have the 49ers going. I think I love what they do on offense. I think they're, again, one of those teams that uh, they zigging when everyone else is zagging. They, they, they have they, a strong running game built on play design. Um, and positionless football. On the AFC side, it's kind of a bloodbath. Um, this could be the year for the Bills. Here's the interesting one, the Dolphins. Such a unique team in how they approach the game with heavy run, pl- or run pass options. Almost every one of their throws, they average a first down on all their throws. So where every team's trying to check the ball down, they're trying to convert a first down with almost every throw they have. How do we, and that by using air yards, which measures the line from the uh, distance of the throw from the line of scrimmage to the target, they're over 11 yards, leaps and bounds over everyone. Why is this interesting? Is the hardest play in football is that third and seven plus play. But if they're treating every play like that, then teams can't approach their game plan the same way they approach other teams. So can they, can they use this to their advantage? Will their quarterbacks still keep getting hurt because they're always in these heavy dropback scenarios? It's unknown. If they can protect Tua, they are a unique team and one that could come out, even though the AFC East is such a bloodbath this year. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. Sam Schwartzstein, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. That is it for today. Subscribe. We have great interviews and the biggest news coming at you every weekday. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your weekend. We will see you on Monday.